0: You're listening to The Substandard Model. Yeah.
1: Greetings, listeners. Today, you will be lucky enough to have the opportunity to listen to our good friend Henry talk about his day at the Crystal Labs. A day which, in his words, was truly fantastic. We cover quite a lot of things. We cover X-ray crystallography, we cover quasi-crystals, and one thing that you really take away from it is that Henry had a bloody good time. And uh, uh, yeah, I hope in the next half hour or so, you do too. So, you know, uh, enjoy.
0: All right, let me find my thing. I yesterday went to um, the White City campus for Imperial where they do a lot of chemistry and biology stuff because I wanted to find out more about what they're doing there. And I talked for about three hours to this guy who works in a crystallography lab. Mm -hmm. And what he does there is crystallography, X-ray diffraction crystallography. And that's really cool just because, you know, you get to see it in these glass containers. They've got a thing that shoots X-rays, which are really high energy radiation light, through a little tiny little piece of uh, crystal. She cuts off with a tiny, and they are just razors. They use razor blades to slice little pieces of sugar off a sugar crystal or whatever, right? So what he did in front of me, in front of my own eyes, over the course of maybe 30 minutes, 40 minutes, started with sugar in a sugar bowl, broke it down, put it on his little sample cup. Then he took the sample cup, put it in some silicon oil, some sort of thing like that. It was a, a paracetone or something some thick jelly-like oil. Puts the sugar in that, puts it under a microscope, looks through, filters through all the pieces to find which ones have got flat edges or clean surface. Then he uses a razor blade to clean it up a bit. Then he gets one tiny crystal. Then he gets this sort of needle-like mount, which has got a screw bit at the bottom. Takes it, uses the jelly, puts it on it, and the jelly sort of dries a little bit. As it evaporates, it glues this tiny, and I'm talking tiny, maybe uh you know 50 microns across something like that it's on the scale of microns because um you know quarter of a millimeter something like that so smaller than granulated sugar um so he puts it on the top of this needle tip the jelly dissolves the surface tension then glues this pit onto the top of this needle like bit then he screws it into the x-ray diffraction mount which has got a movable robotic arm that moves this crystal it can rotate it, it can move it and that's important then He blows liquid nitrogen over it, and that comes out at, you know, minus 196, but obviously warms up a little bit in ambient conditions. So you've got a a, a evacuated. Mm -hmm. You've got two pieces of metal, and they put a giant voltage over it to free single electrons. And when they start freeing the single electrons, that starts the chain reaction process that uh, will will lead eventually to the production of X-rays so then you're firing these x-rays through this crystal and what happens is as it passes through the crystal different areas of the crystal have got different electron densities depending on what they are but it's a 3d object the crystal right and you don't know specifically how many things are in it so you've got the crystal and you then got the detector on the other side and you move the detector throughout 3d space around the sides of the crystal while you're constantly firing electrode uh, uh, x rays through it, and then they're bouncing off or being absorbed by the electrons around the atoms within the unit cell of these crystals, which is the repeating unit of each crystal, because a crystal is formed of repeating units of groups of atoms. Right. Like in salt, you'd have a repeating unit of sodium and chloride stuck together, repeating in a square lattice pattern. And then these angles tell you about um, the location of specific areas of electron density. And it can tell you roughly how many electrons are there based on the pattern you get on the outside and roughly what their coordinates are. And there's so much cool maths going into this because they sometimes need to work out what the angle of the crystal is. But you don't generally initially know what the angle of the crystal is, but the software works with it. So if you're firing x-rays in at this direction it's hitting at a weird angle how do you know you're repeating patterns in what angle to your x-rays because if you've got a repeating pattern that's just like say it's vertical lines of electrons right. and when you fire x-rays through it it'll diffract like a double slit experiment but if you've got vertical lines that are like that angle or whatever or you've got circles of electrons or you've got circles of electrons that are you know at different angles to each other I mean, what's the x-rays going to do with that? So there's really cool software that deals with it. They treat it like you get sort of averages and then they can treat each layer of the unit cell as a sort of plane. And then they have layers of these planes. They assume they have layers of these planes and they actually treat it like thin film interference where the x-rays will come in. One will penetrate the first plane. One won't penetrate the first plane and will reflect off it. Uh And then the one that's coming from below will reflect off the second plane. And then when those two come out, and they constructively add on top of each other, the ones that result give a resultant value for are the ones which are within integer wavelength multiples of it. And if they're in half integer wavelength multiples, then they destructively interfere and you get nothing. So you get black spots depending on how far apart each plane is. They consider all of this. And the final result is, here are the areas of electron density for an average repeating unit. And you see these cool little black dots with all these and images and whatnot. Repeating,
1: depending, whatnot. Having considered all the angles where you can take it from.
0: Mm, mm. Okay, And it's a 3D average repeating yeah, that right. the computer produces. And then they have modeling software which will guess what each, each atom is. So it'll say, we found six electrons here. So there's probably a carbon. Or we found eight electrons here. So it's probably an oxygen. But the cool part is, is then the researcher comes in Uh and they have these softwares where the size of the atom that's displayed on the software is dependent on how many electrons they found in that area and what you've guessed it to be. So if you over guess and the computer says there's an area of six electron density here, and can I just say the 3D image they create is based off specific coordinates that it works out using the X-ray diffraction. Okay. So it can say you know three X, four Y, and six Z. So it's very accurate. And this is on the and they do angstroms because each bond length is about two angstroms. Jesus. Actually, one of the things that I thought, I'll get onto it later. Um, but if you have a carbon, or if you've guessed it to be a carbon, but there are more electrons than you expect then it increases the size or the diameter of your carbon that it's guessing to compensate for the amount of electrons that it's found okay so sometimes you get these ballooned carbons but it'll still go, think okay it's a carbon. well that's not right it's uh, probably right. an oxygen so you click on you say it's oxygen this one and then it shrinks the size of it also ah. if you get ones which are oxygens and they've got less electrons than expected then it'll be smaller than expected Okay. So at the moment, they're all spherical, the guesses. You've got all the bond angles, and it's all perfectly laid out. The cool part is you can say, okay, display all the electrons that we've got unaccounted for after you've made this model, because it it does a close approximation, but it doesn't know what it's doing. And what we found doing that is you display the model, and all the carbons that were sort of reasonably sized but not quite right had two lobes of brownness next to it, and that was a p-orbital. That was so fucking saw. cool to see that this software said two lobes next to this atom, and we were like, oh, that one's probably an oxygen because it's quite big and it's got two brown lobes next to it. And I was like, how the fuck is it doing that? How is it? It's, it's, it's spotting that it not only needs two extra electrons, but they're in a lobe in this angle. And the lobes were angled in 3D space and it can't see the hydrogens by the way because the hydrogens are just single protons with their electrons often drag, dragged towards the thing it's bonded to it can't see any hydrogens so it, it uses software and past experience to guess the location of the hydrogens with respect to the angles so it uses I mean i guess it can like only really see
1: the electrons can't it so it,
0: yeah. it can only really go for but we use neutron diffraction if you want to find the proton location so right, this is one way of, of find finding so you'll do X-ray diffraction. And if you're not really sure about stuff, then you really wanted to clarify. If you really, really wanted to know, then you use neutron diffraction. But that's very difficult to do. You oh, need to produce right. slow-moving neutrons, which means you need to do a nuclear reaction in order to produce the neutrons. So then you have your really complicated crystal, which has determined all the angles, and you've you've guessed all the... You think you're pretty sure on which one's an oxygen and which one's are carbon and which one's are hydrogen, or where the hydrogen locations are going to be based off... Because what the raw data comes out is an electron map. Of where the electrons are, and then you localize specifically which atoms which, and you mm-hmm. say it all look like, and you start seeing this crystal form. And we were forming sucrose, which is quite a big molecule, or at least from my experience, quite a big molecule. That was so cool to see because it's actually quite a weird crystal. Because it's handed, I think.
1: Yeah. I mean anything made by a plant or a biological entity would be handed in the same
0: way. Mm-hmm. So handedness is whether or not, well, it comes from your hand idea. You can't rotate these to sit on top of each other. Like they're objectively different unless you make these conform to each other.
1: But you could hypothetically like yin yang it to make a sort of individual unit cell which works.
0: Yeah, exactly. So you could you could say the two handed parts come together and then that's a repeating unit. Yeah. This and I'm gonna come to this in a second, comes very hard into stuff like tiling, tessellations because a tessellation is basically a larger blown up image of a unit cell it's a unit component and you add lots of them together and it gives a pattern
1: mm-hmm.
0: so with, with then there was a bit of research he was showing me stuff he said don't take pictures of this stuff because this stuff is um research that's happening at the moment so <laughs> so I, I, I mean i didn't take anything from this but the, the molecule that was in consideration had they they, they were trying to create a mixture where they were, tr- they had a compound, some big porphyrin ring thing, with a vanadium in the middle and an oxygen double bonded to the vanadium, sitting in the middle of a ring. Right. And then they also had the same exact ring with a zinc in the middle,
1: mm-hmm.
0: that kind of thing, right? And what they wanted to see is if they could have a stable crystal which had, you know, certain percentages. And they think it was this kind of molecule, if they could have it with both the zinc and the vanadium oxygen mixture, and they were both crystallized together in one mixture but yeah. the unit cell wasn't so different because you've only swapped out the large metal in the middle such that they were the same and obviously because these are giant metals in the middle you find huge amounts of stray electrons and whatnot and what he was trying to do is run the simulation so run the uh, x-ray diffraction you find all the areas of electron density it fits the lovely porphyrin ring it fits the vanadium and it fits the oxygen and there's a thing called an r-score which tells you basically how closely your model that you're creating fits the electron density that the X-ray diffraction has found.
1: Right, so how how confident you can be.
0: Yeah. And it gets really, because we're assuming up until this point that the average unit cell is actually very consistent throughout the crystal. But it's really not. I mentioned to him the previous thing that we'd done with Fibonacci numbers, because you'll find that one unit cell there the one above it might be slightly rotated. And then when you diff- scan that with x-ray diffraction, it diffracts it slightly different from the layer below. And then maybe the next layers are like that and whatnot and all that, right? Right. So they're all not perfectly laid on top of each other. That's, what I that think happens the is point it of spreads the out the electron cloud. So there's another thing that they could do is they could represent it instead of spheres for each atom, They represented it as as ellipses, which were spread out depending on which ways the atoms would vibrate in the thing or where they were spread. Okay. So you'd have ones where it's like, if it's a very hot crystal, they would have huge flattened out places where the atoms were.
1: Because the individual unit cells are mobile?
0: Well, the individual unit cells are shifting and wiggling so much. Actually, you see on hydrogens or any part of the molecule that's further away, or it's only got one bond to the rest of the molecule they're much more spread out because they're wiggling more. Right. I found it very weird that they only wiggled along one axis in that the the ellipse had a direction to the ellipse. Like it had a, a close point and a far point in a particular angle.
1: I thought bonds just but vibrate actually along their this. axis. Yeah.
0: Well, they go along their axis, but actually they wiggle back and forth more than that, he said. Really? Yeah, but I thought they would go sort of equally in all directions in their sort of lateral wiggling, but actually they sort of wiggle back and forth like mm-hmm. that. Right, so so there's the spreading out disc shape. Mm-hmm. So what he did was he put in the vanadium was a good fit. The R score was about six out of the gates.
1: So that means that R unit cell theory for what this looks like is accurate.
0: Pretty accurate because it's out of, it's a percentage and 6% is pretty good. But oh, R scores good. are just like a computer generated how good this image fits your model, but they're not perfect because some molecules you can have things that are not exactly localized. Like sometimes there are fullerenes that surround your molecule in your unit cell and the fullerene's free to rotate because it's not technically bonded to the rest of the unit cell. Yeah. So the locations of all the carbons in your fullerene, because they're rotating like that, become really spread out and don't really fit the electron density of the model you propose. So your R score shoots up to to about twenty percent or something. But that's pretty good for that kind of thing. Right. So don't take R-score as a, this means it's good. Take R-score as, it's another piece of evidence to suggest that your thing might potentially be good. But if you say, well, this kind of molecule is very, very notorious for having poor R-scores because it's free to rotate, then you could say 20 is actually good and six is amazing versus usually six being mid and four being amazing or whatever, right? Right, right, I get that. So then he switches the ratio of Hmm. zinc- To vanadium oxide. So what he could do is say, given the data, let's assume that if you went through 100 molecules, let's assume that 95 of them were vanadium oxide within the middle of this porphyrin ring, or or some sort of ring, and five of them were zinc. If If the zinc was randomly distributed in the vanadium, does this now better fit the electron density map you've seen? One of the things he mentioned to me that was really exciting was I said, what do you really, what makes you think this is so great? What's so great about X-ray crystallography? save for other aliens that might potentially exist out there in the universe. Some of the stuff that comes through this lab, I may be the first living being to lay eyes on that structure in the universe. And he said, that really gives him a kick. Um, because, you know, it's all suggested based on the theory of what they do. It, but he's the one who actually sees what the structure is.
1: Like that structure might be like the equivalent of chlorophyll for an alien planet, and you've just seen it.
0: Exactly, exactly. I,
1: I get it, I get it.
0: But, okay, so so he changed the ratios of zinc to vanadium, and the model now better fit the electron data that we found, or the electron locations.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Then he changed the ratio of 98 vanadiums to two zincs. Right, so now okay. the grad student's looking a little bit silly, because I was thinking it's looking like there could be no zinc in this, but actually he got like a 5.6 R score percent R score where Is he ad- had a 98 to two ratio, two zincs per hundred hundred um, rings of hundred unit cells per hundred unit cells. If two of them have zinc thing, then it's a better fit.
1: So you just sort of fish for the lowest R score you can get by changing the ratios. And then assume there's a that- lot
0: of data to look at the, the, the modeling software they have, there's a lot of little pieces they can do a thing that i can tell you about now he t- he brought up the brown electron localizing areas for any unexplained electrons or weird electrons it's got a number that tells you what percentage of electrons are here because it's an average so they say there's like 50% of electronness here because in the black spot that you get for the x-ray diffraction the light parts and the dark parts right mm-hmm. Yeah, You get a dark part that's sort of reminiscent of 50% electron, right? Wow. Well,
1: uh... And you
0: see that for bonds that move or bonds that flip. So in a benzene ring, you'd see sort of 16% or whatever electron in the area in the middle kind of thing, right? Okay. And there was ones where there were two locations for where the hydrogen could be because It could flip back between that way and that way, kind of rotate a little bit. So there was a 50% electron on this side and 50% electron on this side. And the beauty of it is that it was very close to 50% if it was going to be an equal chance. So he that's found the stuff you see, isn't it? Sometimes it, it will say 6.5 electrons are here. Okay. And that's pretty indicative of the fact that you're missing an atom. Yeah. Right. It's likely that there's an oxygen there. Also, when you had the vanadium oxygen there, he found few electrons directly below the vanadium
1: but that's presumably because the electron clouds being dragged up because of the oxygen or something isn't
0: it no it was directly below vanadiums there they're both pulled slightly out less, of the plane and there's less electrons the below the vanadium and then below it there was uh electrons for the vanadium oh there was more electrons for the vanadium yeah oh so we were. i was like okay maybe the zinc sits on the other side and he said okay maybe sometimes the porphyrin ring is orientated in the other direction yeah so that you get electronness in the other way. But he said, actually, that's not very likely. So then we went to a periodic table that shows X-ray absorption lines for each element because they had two different X-ray sources, one that uses copper and one that uses molybdenum, which have got different frequencies of X-rays that are emitted. And then you get different absorption lines for like how, how common it will be that it will absorb or whatever, right? Yeah, exactly. And actually we found the vanadium absorption line was pretty high. Don't
1: I was going to say. So
0: he thinks that the electronness that we found below the plane for the vanadium was actually because one in every hundred or one in every two hundred zaps is just being absorbed by the vanadium atom. And so the X-ray oh. diffraction setup is saying that there's electronness where there shouldn't be. I mean, this was a fantastic ah, day for me. I just. It's so that.
1: exciting. Like it's that's such a that's such I, I've never seen. It's such that, a cool job. That's the most I've ever been interested in chemistry. Right, as a as a job because like there's so many like connections there. Like it's like you have to think about the absorption and then think about the orbitals and then like there's a lot of problem solving, isn't there?
0: Right. He was just like using a mouse on a computer going. Okay, let's click on this one, C21, carbon 21 in this molecule. What if that was a nitrogen? Oh, it shrinks a bit, so it looks a bit better now. And what if that one was actually in this location, which the brown electrons say there, or oh, the R score comes down a little bit? You basically tweak it all until you get as low an R score as you can get within reason for, like, I mean, if you're tweaking it and you're artificially decreasing the R score, but it's like now outlandishly different from what the person said they used to make it, then it's unlikely to be true. Right. So within reason, you find a nice balance for what the R-score is, and then you say, boom, this is probably what the... Yeah. And it does bond minimization. It does all of that shit, all included, you know, all of the electrostatics it considers and whatnot.
1: I mean, X-ray crystallography is what they've been doing with proteins for years.
0: Yes. So I've got two more things to talk about. I'm going to talk a bit more about the chirality stuff. Right, right. The handedness. And then I was also going to talk about the tiling.
1: Tessellations, right? Okay.
0: There's a thing called a quasicrystal. Okay. So I was asking, I was pampering a bit about the t- the tessellations. He was telling me about how you could get two handednesses or two different types of molecules that, in and of themselves, seem like a unit cell. And then now this pair is actually the base unit cell for your yeah. molecule.
1: Yeah.
0: For your for your for your crystal. And then I said, Have you seen Penrose tiles? where you can't achieve any repeating pattern throughout the structure but it is technically formed of the same unit cell it's a quasicrystal and they exist really so there's there's crystals that will never repeat so they you can't x-ray diffraction them he said it's very difficult to x-ray diffraction quasicrystals and he hated them he kind of spat on them a little bit he was like ew doesn't follow the definition of a unit cell right but it is kind of a unit cell it's a molecule that forms a lattice but the remember how i talked about how sometimes the angles are different the angles will permanently be different
1: so i know with penrose tiles it's like they use like two different shapes or something to achieve that in these crystals do you see like what we found like do you do you have one that like looks like the penrose tile or like one that like has a minimized number of shapes that matches with what mathematicians have found what do you mean like um i mean like part of the thing with penrose tiles is it was like like we can make a non-repeating crystal if we just add like infinite different kinds of shapes but it was like what's the minimum number of of different shapes that you need in order to to tile to make this structure
0: i suspect that
1: or is it different in 3d maybe maybe that's different
0: well it is in 3d actually but
1: I forgot about that. I was thinking two D because Penrose tiles, because
0: like, well, I'm looking at the wiki- w- Google quasi crystals on Wikipedia, because then okay. you can talk more about this. Uh... They took a Fourier transform or Penrose tiling to find a pattern that you would expect if you did a diffraction of. <laughs> I can see that a quasi crystal. That's so. That's so cool.
1: So they reverse engineered like the perfect yeah. quasi crystal.
0: Yeah, these aperiodic patterns or these. Aperiodic tessellations within quasicrystals occur when the molecules or the unit cell is composed of enough atoms. So, you're I mean, these are generally giant unit cells that are not, not huge, huge, but pretty huge, like 25-odd atoms in it, right? Right. Uh, arranged in a shape that defines a unit cell, but you will never find another unit cell that fits into its local area of the pattern like that one does. Right. That's okay. the aperiodic aspect of it. They found other stuff with periodic crystals where you could have a crystal that's like sucrose, right? Mm -hmm. But you've got, let's say, you just threw a uranium into it, right? There's a uranium sitting around the sucrose or something, right? or the sucrose sitting around the uranium. This is a completely theoretical idea, right? Right. So it's like that. And it's located at one point in time in this coordinate, right? Slightly away from the sucrose. One unit cell up, it's actually arranged slightly to the left or to the right, right? Then another unit cell up, it's arranged slightly more to the right. And then a further unit cell up, it's arranged back to the left a little bit. And then another unit cell up, it's arranged back to the left a little bit, right? Right. So what you've done there is as the unit cells go up, the uranium's going, it's there, then it's there, then it's there, then it's there, then it's there. So now you have a periodic pattern for the location of a specific atom within a unit cell that's periodic throughout the structure of the crystal, right, okay. so you could have a an atom that moves in a periodic sine wave throughout a crystal.
1: I see so and it's then just about... ones which are
0: aperiodic as well. Ah, oh. I thought it was cool though, if you find a crystal that's... that is made of a same unit cell that's fundamentally aperiodic throughout the structure in three d space.:
1: I bet that has some interesting properties as well. I bet it's really not very brittle.
0: That's a good thought, actually. I have should we just look at that now actually?
1: I mean they have icosahedrite, that's a naturally found one, isn't it?
0: Thermally of... stable up to seven hundred icosahedrite, did it say
1: yeah that was that was the first one they found I think
0: dozens of quasi crystals with different compositions and symmetries have been discovered over the past twenty five years. most crystalline quasi crystal structures result in ceramic like properties. High thermal and electrical resistance, high hardness, anti corrosion, wow. non stick. But because due to their ceramic brittle like nature, researchers focus practical applications on the development of quasi crystalline coatings. So they're brittle. I don't know why they're brittle. Confused by that. Uh, I would advise people to Google it. Well, actually, I'll put it in the YouTube video, when not I? Because this is a video. So yeah. just throw up pictures of quasi crystals.
1: Did you think that was the end? No. No, you've still got a bit more to go because uh, it turns out that me and Henry sort of came to the realisation that we hadn't properly explained what Penrose tiles actually are. So we gave that a go. And then it dawned on us that there might be, you know, a little bit of distance left on the old road of discovery when it comes to quasi-crystals because we realised to our shame that we hadn't yet mentioned our new favorite topic, the um golden ratio. So here's a bit of that for you now. there are a special kind of um tessellation pattern. Yeah. yeah. Where they use it's the minimum amount of, well, it's actually they actually beat it last year, didn't they? They
0: that's did. One of, that's one but, tile.
1: Yeah, it's they got a one tile one. But before that they were trying to find the minimum number of different shapes that you can tessellate together, structure like something you could tile off bathroom floor with. But Where to such an extent where if you could overlay that bathroom floor on top of itself you wouldn't be able to get any matchups because imagine if you had just a square tile you can just overlay that on itself and it matches up nicely if you had triangular tiles you could do the same thing and people wondered if there was a way that you could do it and there's no matchups anywhere Roger Penrose Uh who did a lot of things in his life found found a way to do that Um, and then he got um, well he got approached by a toilet paper company who wanted to buy his Uh, He wants to buy a tiling method because, interestingly, if you're making toilet paper, you also don't want it to overlap as it goes around the paper. Because if you overlap, uh, it increases the fluffiness if you don't get any overlaps when it comes to the little toilet paper grip structure. So they wanted to use the
0: Penrose tiles. You get thicker sections. sections
1: Yeah, exactly. It, it, It makes a neater, more consistent bundle if it doesn't overlap with itself and you know
0: it's a more consistent wipe which is you know that's important
1: it, a lovely smooth silky consistent effective wipe is what you achieve through math. Which is why
0: we do maths in this day and age why you do math.
1: and you know hearing myself i'm really thinking there's some golden ratio in there i'm hearing myself say a lot about overlapping it's
0: interesting that you mentioned that because i asked the dude if he if he knew if there was any um Crystal lattices that rotated themselves by a golden ratio angle or an irrational angle. He said he didn't know. Bet there is. I bet there of is. Of course there is. Do you want to I Google I bet it? they all
1: do. I could say What the fuck? Didn't we literally just... Isn't this what we literally just said? The constant is found over and over again in the structure of quasicrystals and aperiodic mosaics. For instance, the ratio between the numbers of fat and thin rhombi in Penrose's mosaic is the golden ratio. What? The ratio between the two different kinds of shapes that they make. Oh my god, we were just talking about Penrose tiles and we were like, I bet the golden ratio is involved and it's literally like the exact way he made it. Of course it is. We're idiots, and the ratio of various distances between atoms and quasi-crystals is always a coefficient
0: of tau. Tau yeah, is golden ratios and the quant and the and the quasi-crystals is an article named.
1: How do we not find that when we were looking at the fucking Wikipedia page of quasi-crystals half an hour ago?
0: You're listening to The Substandard Model.